Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we're all about playing with ways to navigate life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort. I'm a sound artist, songwriter and slow coach. And I love helping people understand and engage with their natural internal rhythms and processes using creativity and play so they can make sustainable progress on meaningful pursuits without getting overwhelmed, shutting down or burning out. In this week's episode, I am really excited to share a conversation I recently had with Dorcas Cheng Tozen, who is the author of Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul. Uh, Dorcas came up in a conversation I had a while back with Barbara Allen, who had, uh, I think recently at the time, spoken with Dorcas um, for the Sensitive and Strong uh, podcast, which is Annette Deswart's um, show. And uh, her and uh, Jacqueline Strickland and, uh, yeah, Barbara Allen, Annette and Jacqueline had uh, had a conversation with Dorcas around the book. And it was a really interesting conversation. I went and listened to it after uh, I'd spoken with Barbara. And I was like, yeah, this, I think, would be really helpful to explore um so for the gentle rebel podcast as well so uh, there's quite a few things that i've spoken with with listeners about um, and with people around the haven um that i think would be worth kind of unpacking and, and getting into a little bit with dorcas so I, I i guess i i really wanted to um cover three broad areas in our conversation so firstly the uh, the idea around innate sensitivity and the biological draw uh, that we have towards humanitarian causes, um, kind of it, looking at the idea of like our um, survival um, strategy as highly sensitive people. Uh, why might that kind of draw us towards caring about humanitarian causes? Secondly, particular challenges um, for highly sensitive folk who pour their energy, their focus, their compassion into making the world a better place. Um, you know, the challenges that come when it feels like you're getting nowhere, um, which it often can. Um, and then thirdly, ways to help our innate sensitivity work sustainably with that drive for um, positive, compassionate change in a uh, an often hostile world. So I think we, we hit all three in our conversation, but there's definitely um, a lot more that we could we could have covered um there were there were sort of threads that it was like oh i'd love to go down that line but we just don't have time here so um i yeah suggested that we we might have a follow-up conversation in the future which which dorcas agreed to so um i'm going to be very mindful of that you know and and put that out there to you if there are any topics that you would love to hear us go more deeply into or or things that we didn't cover that you'd be interested to hear us uh, speak about when we speak again then do drop me a message and let me know and I'll uh, make a note of it for uh, next time round. So to give a little bit of background about Dorcas, uh, she currently lives in California with her husband and her two sons. Um, she's lived around the world, including uh, mainland China, Hong Kong and Nairobi in Kenya. Uh, and she has nearly 20 years of experience as a non-profit and social enterprise professional. She served as the director of communications for D-Light one of the world's leading social enterprises, and she's provided communications consulting for social benefit companies around the world. Um, so yeah, I'm going to just sort of get straight into it. I'll be back at, get, uh, at the end again to say a proper goodbye and to wrap things up and to let you know uh, how you can join me to explore any of the ideas that come up in this episode that you um, are like, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of like to dig a bit deeper into that. Um, if you'd like to do that with me and with uh, the Haven community, then there's an opportunity to do that. I'll let you know uh, what that's about um, after the conversation. All right. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Dorcas Cheng Tozen, it is really lovely to have you with me. I've, I've Ever since I came across the idea of your book, um, mm. Social Justice for the Sensitive Soul, uh, I was like, I've got to talk to Dorcas. Um, and yeah. yeah, I'm really glad that you're with me. So how I are you doing? I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for extending the invitation. Oh, absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to kind of diving into this, uh, yeah, this topic of social justice and that kind of drive that highly sensitive people often have to 
Uh, yeah, caring for the world, changing the world, that kind of nudge that we often carry with us. Um, so it'd be great to start just like learning a little bit about you really and your story and um, I guess what started your journey in social justice? Was there a particular inciting incident that got yeah, you going? Yeah, there actually was. So I grew up, I'm, I'm the child of immigrants from Hong Kong, the first in my family to be born here in the US. So I am, as you can tell, American um, and, and grew up though in a very sheltered environment, had very little understanding of sort of the outside world and what was going on. Um, but when I went to college, um, there there was a my second year at, at university, there was a trip that um, students could sign up for during what we call our spring break, right? And it's called alternative spring break, where you can go, instead of going on vacation, <laughs> you can go to um, a community and really you know, be there for a week and learn about um, their challenges, their experiences and what's going on there. And so the issue that I uh, signed up for and, and the area I signed up for was the issue of homelessness, um, which is a big challenge, especially here in California, the state that I live in. And um, and then it was spending a week in one of the tougher, more low income neighborhoods in the city of San Francisco. And, and so we were going around, we were visiting shelters, we were interviewing people who didn't have access to housing, we were talking to people who worked with them throughout that week. We also did a lot of learning in the weeks leading up to the actual trip itself. And that was just so incredibly eye-opening for me to recognize that, I mean, certainly I always knew that there was people suffering, that, um, that people didn't have all that they needed, but I did not understand the ways in which systems um, kept people in that place. How, you know, I think I had been raised with the belief that if you just work hard enough, and try your best, you'll be fine. That will solve everything. And and to to recognize that, no, there are so many forces, systems, processes working against people, even when they are working really hard, even when, you know, it seems like they've checked all the boxes and done all the right things, they still can't get out of poverty or out of wherever it is that they're stuck because, um, because there are just too many things that are um, stacked against them. And, and so it helped me to understand that that actually is where change needs to happen. It's not just about the individual person changing their individual choices and, and actions, but but there are things that as entire communities and societies, we need to be looking at and trying to change. Mm. Mm. Fantastically, yeah, articulate. And what did that trip do in terms of then kind of inspiring a, a yeah, I don't know, action or yeah, a response in yeah, you? Yeah. So I was, a, you know, still a student at that time, but I very soon after joined a student group that um, our our goal was so, you know, I, I lived on campus, but we were in this university town that was very affluent, but actually had a surprising number of homeless people on the streets. And so um, the, the goal of the group actually was to go out almost every single night of the week, we would send at least two volunteers to go and walk the streets and simply build relationships friendships, have conversation, dignifying conversations with the um, the unhoused individuals that we encountered. Because um, what part of what we learned was that at least where we were, there were a fair number of services and resources available for people. You know, they could they could find places to shower. Um, there were shelters if they wanted to stay there. Um, they could get some of their very basic needs met. But a key element that was missing for them was this opportunity to just engage with other in other people mm -hmm. as as humans, you know, as equals, as you know, you have a lot to share, I have a lot to share. Let's just have a conversation and learn from one another and be friends. And so that was an incredibly rich experience for me. It was challenging. It was really stretching. Mm -hmm. um, and I went out every week sometimes a few times a week, I ended up leading that group. So I'd fill in every time there was a volunteer who couldn't make it. Um, but it uh, it really grew my capacity, I think, to empathize 
with others who um, are very different from me and to learn more about their life experience and to become even more motivated to be involved. And so that was one thing that I did. There were a few other student groups that I was involved in. I did try to participate in some sit-ins and protests um, as many university students do, and it was always extremely uncomfortable, but I tried it, I did it. Um, and then after after university, um, just went straight into the nonprofit NGO sector and and have been there pretty much ever since with a few you know turns here and there. but but that that connection to wanting to advocate for justice has been part of my entire adult career. Yeah, so it's a proper kind of pivot point or, Point that, that pointed yeah. you in a certain direction yeah 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 so i mean to it'd be good to i guess define some terms really as well as we as we begin yeah, um sure. so the term social justice itself i think it's something we hear a lot um yes. but i wonder how you define that and other different ways of thinking about that term yeah so the definition that that i like to use that um i borrow from um i believe it's a dictionary of the environment, um, I may not be getting that name exactly right, but but uh, they describe it as social justice is the objective of um, moving towards societies where every individual has rights, has access, has opportunity, that there is equality and fairness in opportunity and decision making, and that everybody is able to live with dignity and, and have health and safety um, in in their everyday lives. That's nice. Yeah, that's. You can't argue with that. Yeah. <laughs> really. Although I try. Yeah, it's pretty hard to argue with. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, when it comes to the kind of highly sensitive piece, um, obviously that's something that you've been on a journey with, become like working out. Okay, you're a highly sensitive person. Uh, what does that mean to you and, and what impact um, does that have on your relationship with, with the work that you do? Yeah, it has made my work exceedingly complicated <laughs> in many regards. So I, I credit my sensitivity with, um, with pulling me towards the work of, of justice. Uh, you know, there is this openness, right? Openness of heart that um, that those of us who are sensitive have toward toward others. And I think especially those who are suffering, who are marginalized, who um, who do not have a fair shake at pursuing a life of dignity. Um, and and it has been a gift in terms of really helping me to connect with people from all different communities, um, being able to see nuances in complicated social issues, um, but there has been this perpetual push and pull that I have experienced in, in my work in that my sensitivity draws me in and then it pushes me away because it, it very easily becomes overwhelming. Um, the, the high intensity, high emotion, high stakes, those are incredibly heavy burdens to bear. And I think that those of us who are sensitive feel that on a very deep level and we feel it keenly every day um the the complexities of what we're dealing with you know it is very easy to just sit and ruminate and wonder did i do the right thing did i do the wrong thing and you could spend days which i have done mm -hmm. wondering about that one conversation you had or that one decision you made um is that really what's best for people or if something doesn't turn out the the way you hoped it would um you know and people don't respond well or something something goes poorly, um, it is really, really easy to question yourself, to take that to heart and to carry um, that disappointment and that failure with you. Um, it's really hard to let it go. And, and so with all of those pressures, um, I have burned out multiple times. I, for a long time, was on a cycle of pretty much every two years. I would burn out. I would have to leave a position. I would think that it was the position because I didn't fully understand myself and my response to what was going on around me. And then I'd move on to something else thinking that that would fix it for me. Um, and it didn't. <laughs> and, and some of those burnouts have been significantly worse than others. I've had a couple of experiences where I 
my body and mind and spirit were so exhausted that I became literally incapacitated. I could not do anything except sleep and cry and eat. Um, so in both of those cases, I had to stop working. I stopped interacting with people. I just stayed home um, and, and fell into a very, very deep, dark depression. Um, second time around, had a very uh, significant dose of anxiety to go along with which you know just makes it all the more interesting uh, but those were incredibly difficult experiences for me um it pulled me away from the work that i i loved but it also made me question how how could this be how could um the the vocation that i feel so strongly is mine to follow i'm so certain of it and yet it is causing so much harm to my own well-being um, and and that's been a, a tension that I've really been negotiating and navigating for you know a good 10 15 years which is where this book came out of mm -hmm. I was going to say it it I was wanting to ask like you know what inspired you to write this book and I'm always really hearing through the passion that you're you're kind of expressing yourself with about why that like this you know this work matters so much to you and then there's the the story of these cycles of burnout and kind of figuring out how do i do this with this highly sensitive kind of temperament and nervous system and yeah. um yeah so what like what's the message i suppose that you're wanting to get across and who are you wanting to um to talk to with the book yeah, so it is primarily for those who identify as highly sensitive, although I, I think also our, our friends who consider themselves to be um, highly empathic and highly introverted, right? We, we know that there's a lot of overlap between those three groups. You don't have to identify as all three, but um, I certainly do. <laughs> and there are probably others who do as well. And, um, and so there's, there's a lot of shared characteristics. And um, what I would what I'm trying to say through this book is one, I mean, affirming, affirming who you are and the gifts that you bring. I think especially in a space like social justice where the the fighter, the the loudest voice, the most confident, you know, out front person is the one who tends to get the most attention and tends to be the one that we associate true justice work with. Um, but but the reality is that that is only one very small subset of who social activists are. And so um, I want to affirm that there is absolutely a place for for the sensitive, empathic and introverted in the work of social justice. You bring incredible gifts. And not only that, we desperately need you. Um, I think the the temperament, the approach, um, the the kind of more um, intuitive ability to connect and empathize and um, and find kinder, gentler approaches. Um, we we need that as a counterbalance to all of the, the anger and the conflict and the division that we're seeing today. Um, and so, so we need you for that reason, but we also need you because the world has a lot going on right now. And, and the challenges that we are dealing with as societies, as countries, as a planet are so significant and so complicated that it's sort of all hands on deck, right? And and we need your creative approaches. We need your different perspective. Um, and we need people pushing levers in all different industries, communities, in um, creative strategies, because uh, I think that's that's how change happens. That's is that, you know, a complicated social problem is not going to be solved by, you know, just people marching and protesting. Um, it, it will be solved by a large group of people doing many, many different things and trying as many things as they can to, um, to see if they can push the needle on change. Yeah. I'm so glad you've said that because I think so many people that I've spoken to, like, I feel this, you know, I need to do something. I feel like I, you know, have to sort of express the pain that's going on in me as I look at the world out there. And, um, but there's also this real conflict where you look at the way that activism appears to, you know, this is the, the model of activism that you see in front of yeah. you. And, it, and there is a lot of 
um, just shouting, people shouting past each other and oh, yeah. this growing sense of like hostility that is never really resolving itself. Um, yes. And so to, I think to really galvanize that, the strengths of, of highly sensitive people and, you know, mm-hmm. hearing you talk about that experience, um, kind of just going out and talking to people and speaking, you know, seeing people as people, that compassionate side Absolutely. is such an important, such a simple but profound part of that bigger picture. Yes, um, yes, simple but not easy, right? Not as easy, absolutely. So many people who who are not quite able to do that right now. Yeah. Um, and I think the what you are speaking to, um, I just want to affirm that that's not in people's imaginations. That's not, you know, individual perception. This is very well documented that there has been an increase in anger. There's been an increase in hostility, mistrust, in division, in these silos and tribalism. Um, you see it very, very clearly on social media. I think, you know, certainly we probably see it in our own communities as well. Um, and and so it's, it's real. And, um, and not only, I think, are people having trouble engaging in civil conversation with those that they disagree with, but they're even turning on one another, right? Like if you, even if you have people who may see very well seem to be on the same side of an issue, um, it is very, very common to have infighting, to have criticism of if they feel like you're not doing it the right way, or you're not using the right words, um, your strategy is different from what they think, or your timing is different. Like we are finding all kinds of different ways to, um be angry with one another Mm. and all of that energy i feel like could be channeled in much healthier and more productive ways but instead we are using it to just break one another down and and we're not going to be able to move forward as communities and societies if we continue to do that Mm. yeah so well put yeah and again it's that the thing that i keep hearing from people is just the as you as you just alluded to the almost the kind of ple- in, internal policing of um certain things like you know what words are we using like how are we yeah. approaching this and and people just feel like i i'm scared to to do anything cuz i'm going to get it wrong um yes. and and it feels like there are consequences to getting it wrong and i just yeah. don't want to put myself in that position absolutely yeah that's very fair i completely relate to that yeah yeah it's strange isn't it um yeah, to kind of bring it to the, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on the the kind of the sensitivity as a biological trait and why there, um, there might be a draw towards justice and fairness and, and those kinds of things from a survival perspective, you know, as a, as a part of our survival strategy, as a, you know, because talk about that, the difference between sensitive and non-sensitiveness having kind of different ways of approaching survival as a species yeah Yeah. Um, so I wonder if have you got any thoughts around that yes uh, certainly Uh, so I I have a a good friend and colleague who is also highly sensitive and engaged in justice work and she put it really well she she said that um, highly sensitive people have the gift of noticing right and so because of our attune, you know, the, our ability to attune to everything that's going on around us. We really notice, we see, um, we feel in our gut when something isn't right, right? When, um, when somebody's not being heard, when someone's being left out, when someone's being pushed away or marginalized or not getting, um, getting their, you know, fair opportunity, um, not getting a, a fair share of the resources within a community. Um, so I think, uh, it, and, and when we notice those things, it bothers us, right. On a very deep, like physically, emotionally, even spiritually, I think it just, it really bothers us. And, um, and so that is part of that drive to, uh, I want to do something about it. I want to change it because that's, it's really not okay. And it's not okay because, you know, it's objectively not okay. And to some extent, it is also not okay because of how it's making me feel, right? Um, and and this is a, a heavy burden that I, you know, do not want to have to bear. I shouldn't have to bear. And so so um, let me see 
what I can do. Let me see if there are people that I can mobilize to um, to be a part of this to see if we can um, make things a little bit more fair and equal um, for everyone around us. Mm. Mm. That's really, so there's different, like, yeah, the feeling, I need to kind of do something with this feeling that I'm experiencing when I, when mm. I see this. And, um, and I guess the, uh, the, that, the kind of underlying need for belonging as a social, social species as well is mm. like, that seems to strike me as, as a part of this yeah. puzzle too, where actually we're looking out for these people who are being unfairly treated or there's in, injustice going on here um, because we need, we need people to be together like that's how we survive you know yes. and um and i guess the more that you see because to me it's certainly as inequality grows and you see people sort of i guess siloing and tribalizing and putting themselves behind gates and those sorts of things it's like something's gone fundamentally wrong there <laughs> um mm-hmm. and we are not we're not doing this together anymore um, and that feels, I guess I feel that in my body, like that's something yes, that really yes, kind of hits my well, sensitivity. And, yeah. Yeah. And sensitive people were so relationally oriented. Right. And, um, and I think that's one of the greatest gifts that we contribute to our communities is a sense of prioritizing people, prioritizing relationships. And if something is off in that, then, um, then we're going to be some of the first people to, to realize that and to um to call for for a different approach mm-hmm. absolutely um and in terms of what you've done with uh kind of looking at highly sensitive people and the gifts and strengths that we might have in social justice um, yeah. realms like what are some of those things that we might not consider maybe as uh, typical responses or yeah, ways to just do something about mm. the things that we see. Yeah. Well, I think you and I have already touched on one of the most significant ones, which is this ability to connect with people, to see humans as humans. I think that's that's the first step in almost any justice work, right? And um and we're I, I would say just generally speaking in the activist world, we are not doing a good job of that, of seeing one another as individuals, of seeing um, seeing those that we're, you know, uh, trying to, to bring into the movement or those that we're trying to convince or change their minds. Um, where I think we have a um, tendency more to see them sort of as, as targets or as goals, outcomes, as opposed to individuals, humans, um, people with emotions and thoughts and feelings and entire life stories. Um, and and that has really hurt our ability to bring together people for change, right? So there are um, these international political scientists who have studied social movements over the last 100, 150 years, and they found that you need um, about 3% of the entire population to participate in a movement for change to happen. And, um, you know, when you're talking about an entire country, that's actually a fairly significant number mm. of people. And, and so the bringing in of people, of welcoming them, of calling them in, um, having them be part of this community, that's actually a very significant strategy in um in what social change looks like and without that the change is not possible and so i you do need these um, people like highly sensitive people who have the ability to connect with others to not only you know have the conversation but connect with their heart you know be authentic to empathize um to build those true relationships so so i think that's one of the richest most important things that sensitive people bring to justice work i think also there is this innate creativity that we have right um some of it is uh because we have to have it because we are not going to be the ones who necessarily choose to follow the conventional path of protesting and marching and holding press conferences right and um and so then that will push us to think what else can i do um and and there is um there are many right sensitive souls who are incredibly artistic and and the power of art 
to inspire people, to help them see things in a different way, to um, to push them to, to deeper thought and reflection, right? Um, that is something that sensitive people can engage in. Um, the, uh, the ability to just notice where am I, you know, in terms of my sociolocation, where I work, my neighborhood, my circles of influence, and what is happening in my local community, my um, local environments, where I could possibly already begin to um, to act for change, to advocate for change. Um, and, and so all of those things, I think, are, um, are really valuable perspectives that sensitive people can bring. And I will also say, you know, as we've been talking about, the um, the culture of activism right now has swung so far to this notion of, you know, there's so many litmus tests and you have to do it this way. And um, we are constantly policing ourselves and one another. Um, and there's this incredibly high expectation of you need to be an activist 24 seven, 365 days a year. And if ever you take a break, if ever you have fun, if ever you do a hobby that doesn't have a specific connection to the cause, you are seen as not caring, as not being committed. Um, and that's absolutely not true. And, and I think as sensitive individuals, because we need that, I certainly need that just as a balance to the intensity of justice work. I need things that bring me joy and life and energy and rest um, mm -hmm. because that allows me to be a more healthy, um, more joyful version of myself, which is the self that I want to bring to my justice work. Um, we have to do that. And I think that we are, uh, we can be significant role models for our fellow activists of, hey, I think this will be a healthier approach for all of us if we can give a little bit more compassion and grace and kindness to one another. And remember that that we're humans, we're not robots for um, for social change. And, and when we recognize the humanity and the limitations that we each have, I think it um, encourages us, us all to be more kind and compassionate to one another. Mm. Oh, wow, yeah, so much in that, uh, the, yeah. That we're humans, not robots. Yeah. Kind of just like there's it's, there's so many parallels between. Because I do a lot of stuff of like critiquing our you know hustle culture, like endless drive for productivity, and it's like we just do we want to be machines or do we want to like connect with our humanness? And that's the mm -hmm. the real point of all of this is to mm -hmm. to to reconnect, to express ourselves and, and find those, you know, unique parts of what it means to be alive as human beings. And yeah, I just kind of got claustrophobic almost hearing that, hearing you describe that sort of sense of like, you can't take a break. You've got to be doing this all the time for the cause and um, kind of reminded me of old, these old religious structures where it's like, if you're seen to be sinning, <laughs> essentially, like you, you can't, that like you're you're going to be sort of outcast or like yeah you're not yeah, a proper black and white right you're either in or you're out exactly yeah yeah, yeah. it's kind of uh, yeah and I, and I I kind of get it because it's there's so much wrong mm -hmm. there's so much that needs sort of looking at and addressing there's always something um but one of the things that you know I was reflecting on ahead of this conversation was you know just the fact that we are you know, we're not wired to connect with and care about the entire world. We just cannot, like, it's too big. Um, and and so no one, no one's going to be able to do that without burning out. And what you've just expressed is a, a perfect recipe for burnout, um, as you've experienced. Yes. And I think it's that, also that the creep of individualism and this sense that, uh, I guess, like, there's a, an identity aspect to the, of, of that is who I am. And I've got to be seen as doing that all of the time. Right. Um, and then you are like, this is, this defines me and I have, and it's, it's me on my own almost. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And you might be alongside others, but it's, it's not, it's still individuals making up the group. And so, yeah, I, I, 
does anything in that sort of yeah anything to say to to any of what i've just oh yes um i think it has been um there is at least for me i will certainly speak for myself um what you are are saying um was absolutely true of my experience there is a sense of it's it almost becomes this it starts from a really good place of I want to give everything I can toward a good cause, toward making things better, toward alleviating the suffering of others. And then when it becomes so focused on, I just have to keep going, I can't rest, I can't stop, um, It there is this slow creep toward almost a, a hubris of, if I stop, the world is going to fall apart, right? Mm. Like I am the one who needs to bear this burden. I am the one who needs to fix things. And, um, and well, one, that's just a, a ridiculously heavy burden that nobody should carry or is wired to be able to carry. Um, and, and secondly, it's, um, it's an incredibly, uh, unhealthy perspective to think that you are all alone in this, that you are some sort of superhero, um, which none of us are, right? And and so I, through a, a very hard path, which I hope not everyone will have to take, um, have come to recognize that I need to have a little bit more faith in, in the rest of humanity to know that I am not in this alone. There are so many people around the world who also care very deeply, who are doing their best, when they can with what they have available to them and i there's there's almost this faith element to it of i have to trust that when i need to step back which i absolutely will and everyone should at some point when i need to step back to recut to to rest to recover recuperate um or even just to do other things right i have small children i need to take care of them i i can't ignore them right that is very much a part of um, my role in this world and i even feel like part of my um, role in justice is to help raise the next generation of conscientious um, citizens who who understand the difference between right and wrong and um, and will advocate for those who who are on the margins. Um, and and so when I need to step back, then somebody else will step forward. Someone else will will take the mantle and I don't um, it is not only on me. And I have to believe that. And I, I think that it's true. I think it's absolutely true. You know, you look at every social movement um, that has happened in the last hundred years and you have your extremely prominent leaders, right? You have your Dr. Martin Luther King and your Nelson Mandela and Gandhi and all these. And behind each one of those prominent leaders is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are doing their part in small ways and in large ways, but the movement would not have succeeded without all of their contributions. Dr. King alone, Gandhi alone could not have achieved, you know, significant social change. They yeah. needed an entire community of people around them. And it continues to be that way today. Um, and I'll also speak to what you were saying about burnout. Um, so so in terms of burnout, there is, of course, a huge personal cost. Anyone who has experienced burnout knows it is painful and it is not something that you would choose to um, to go into. And there is a social cost to it. So um, the the average kind of um, career span, I'll say, of, of activists is somewhere in the range of five years. And then they burn out and the majority of them when they burn out they're done forever they leave the sector they go and do something else because they do not know how to exist in this space in a healthy way no one has ever modeled it for them no one's given them permission to try to do that and so if you think about all of the passion the experience the wisdom the energy that we are losing because we are treating one another like machines instead of giving each other space and grace to to just be human mm -hmm. while also caring for a cause um it it is hurting actually the very movements and causes that we care about mm -hmm. you know if if we want to sustain this work if we want real change to happen and there are no no major social changes that happen in a day or a month, right? If you if you um, study social movements, you'll see that many of them take years, decades, sometimes more than that, right? It could be more than a century that people are advocating for something. And so this is this is a long road 
this is not a two to five year commitment, right? Like if, if we want change to happen, we need to find ways to sustain ourselves and our fellow activists in that work of change. And a big part of that is giving each other permission to, to kind of operate on our own timeline of, I'm going to do it for a little bit, I'm going to step back, and then I'm going to do it for a little bit, and I'm going to step back. And that is a perfectly healthy, wonderful rhythm. And it is, um, it's actually very, uh, there's a precedent for it. You know, so when I was studying um, Gandhi as part of writing this book, one of the things that really struck me was the sense of, oh, you know, so Gandhi had his major social actions where he would, you know, do a fast or do a march. And in between each of those major social actions, he would disappear from public life for months at a time. He'd go to his ashram, he'd meditate, he'd rest, he'd think, he'd reflect, he'd hang out with, you know, his closest friends and advisors. Um, and, and so it, it is, um, it is a healthy rhythm to engage in social justice in that way. Mm -hmm. And, um, and if you need to do that, please go ahead and do that because that will be better for you. That's better for your family and your loved ones. And it's actually better for, um, the greater whole as well. Yeah. Oh, so well put. Yeah. Yeah. And that, the word rhythm, I, the, I find that so important in so many areas of life. And I was struck by that, yeah, in the book, kind of talking about those retreats and the power of that, you know, not just as the opportunity to, to rest and kind of regenerate kind of energetically, but also to take that step back from the, the kind of heartland of where things can get, you can lose perspective. You can Absolutely. sort of start getting in these reactive cycles and um, it's like, you know, you, you see it where things just escalate because people haven't been able to separate from one another or separate themselves from a situation far enough to realize, actually, this is not, we've lost sight of the thing that mattered in the first place here. Mm -hmm. um, and so those it's almost like an in-breath and an out-breath. You move towards and then you move away. And that just gives, as you move away, you see that bigger picture. And it's like, okay, yes, now I'm, I can reorient towards what, what really matters. Yes, um, yes. And it so, might mean letting go of certain things and, yeah, all of that kind of thing that you just don't, when you're in the, in the heat of battle, so to speak, you just, you might not be able to see it, you know, the, the wood for the trees kind of... Uh, image yeah yeah and I, struck by talking about sort of raising the next generation as well and that model of rest being such an important thing for young people to see and like yes. you know that the fact that we are all role models all the time to whoever we encounter really uh, whether we realize it or not but so that permission you know i've you see it with people who like they might kind of preach this idea of like well we need to be resting we need to be doing this and it's like but you're not doing that <laughs> you're living in a totally yeah. different way and actually the your actions as the the old cliche says your actions speak louder than words when it comes to imparting that message to the next generation of like well they say that rest is important but it's clearly not like i'll my mm -hmm. self-worth will be kind of measured on the fact that I've just got to keep going. I've got to yeah, burn myself out essentially. And, and as you say that, yeah, five years, like when you think, you know, these, there is, there is always going to be uh, calls for actions and responses and, you know, things that, are, okay, this is not working. Like that's, that's a lifetime, you know, that's generation upon generation upon generation. So um, yeah, finding ways to, yeah, find those breaths and that sustainability is so important. Yeah. But I will add, you know, it it's not easy. There is very real pressure to not take that rest, to not take that breath, to not get that perspective. Um, and I'll say for me, it has become easier as I've gotten older. You know, I mm. um the it's really interesting these these studies that I was looking at about sensitivity and um, how when um, 
you know, when we're younger, there are certain things we're more sensitive to and certain things we're less sensitive to. And then as we get older, it changes. Um, and, and one of the things that we become less sensitive to as we get older are um, people's facial expressions in the sense that um, if, if someone, especially like negative expressions of someone, their, their facial expression is disappointment, anger, judgment, those sorts of things. Um, we, I, I almost feel like it's a gift of aging of, you know, as we get a little bit older, our brains just don't notice it as much. I think, especially for highly sensitive people, our brains don't notice as much when other people might be disappointed or frustrated with us. And yet our ability to still recognize um, positive emotions and facial expressions. So happiness, contentment, joy, all those things that stays constant through, um, through uh, as we age. And so um, there is a sense of, I just, it doesn't bother me as much anymore when when people are disappointed in me, mm. especially I think with the hard won wisdom of knowing, you know, what actually works for me and what doesn't um, and what is healthy for me and what is not, which is different. It's going to be different for me as it is for somebody else, whether you're sensitive or not. And um, and so the ability to just kind of let go of like, OK, that person may not like the way I'm doing this, but it doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing. You know, I could very well be on the right path and what makes the most sense for me and for the issues that I care about. Um, and, and I can just let go of that a little bit more. And I, I would hope also that you don't have to wait <laughs> until you get older to, um, to be able to, to release that. But, but I do think it, it comes with practice. It comes with awareness, um, and just a, a certainty and a clarity in this is who I am. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, who I need to be, to be the healthiest version of myself. Um, and, and honestly, that's the best version of you that you can give to the world. And so it's actually a gift to all of us when you take that time to to step back and, and breathe and do what you need to do and get grounded. Yeah, absolutely. That's really, that's really interesting. That, yeah, I suppose it comes with the, with that experience, with the practice of figuring out, you know, what works best for us through those yeah. situations. And I guess each burnout experience that you've had has that, has that, have you gone from each one with some practical kind of, I don't know, wisdom or awareness of like, okay, I'll do that differently next time? Uh, yes and no. So I will say for the the smaller burnouts, which were, you know, it was more, I had these physical symptoms of, you know, some insomnia and, um, you know, rapid heartbeat, rapid breathing. Um, and also I was younger at the time. So I just ignored those. And um, like I said, I would just quit my job, immediately start a new job thinking that it was the job that was the issue. But but the two extremely serious burnouts that I had, it, I mean, it, I think because I didn't pay attention to um, to those other symptoms, then it was almost like my body had to force me to pay attention. So it's like, all right, I gave you all these signs. You didn't notice, you didn't care. Now I'm just going to shut the whole operation down and force you to pay attention. Um, I would not recommend this for anyone, by the way. <laughs> so if you find that your body is giving you signs of, I am tired, I am overworked, I am overstressed, please pay attention to that because it, it will come to a day. If you do not, you will reach a day when your body shuts down, which is what happened to me. And, and it's an awful, awful experience. It's terrifying. It's disorienting. It's painful. Um, and so during those times, I, I was unable to do anything but rest and, um, and think. And, and so I, um, got myself into therapy. I journaled actually in the bookshelf behind me, I have books and books of their journals just filled with, um, my, my thoughts and reflections and questions from those periods in my life. And I will say most of it is, does not make a lot of sense because I am just so, um, it just was such a low point in my life and it felt like everything was falling apart, right? That identity you spoke to of like, I had identified so strongly with, this is who I am, this is what I'm called to do. And without that, I felt like I wasn't anybody. And that was a very scary place to be. Um, and so there there was this like 
deep excavation within my soul that I needed to do to understand what is going on and why, what are the choices that I've made? What are the, um, even the, the circumstances around me, the particular environments I'm in or the jobs that I've done that have led to this. Um, and, and so those were very intensive times of reflection and um and growth but they were extraordinarily painful and um you know a good six to 12 to sometimes 18 months to get myself out of that hole um and and so now I'll say you know well for one thing I am older and more experienced but again because I have young children I have other responsibilities in my life I don't have it is not an option for me to work to the point of my body shutting down. Um, I need to be available for my kids. And so it has forced me to pay much closer attention to what is going on in my mind and my body. And as soon as those signs start to appear, then now I know, okay, this this is uh, like a warning flag telling me something's not working, something needs to change. And um, and so I've I've gotten a lot better at noticing that, but that there is, there is a bit of a learning curve to it all. And, and I hope that most people will learn faster than me. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think people do, do we? <laughs> I think... It's hard. It's hard. We resist it. We don't want Absolutely. to Absolutely. Yeah. Just hearing you talk about the, you know, when you, you feel those signs in your body, it's like, you know, it's going to, it will burn out eventually. It's like so difficult to listen to those, those things or to actually take them to do something with them like you might hear them and it's like well maybe i'll deal with that another day like for now we're on full throttle um and so if you were to take yourself back to you know earlier life pre-kids and you kind of know what you know now but you're there um what would you do when you when you kind of experience those early signs, what would be some of the practical ways that you would look after yourself? Mm, yeah. Uh, well, in my younger years, I was a classic overachiever and people pleaser. So I could never say no to anything. Uh, anytime anyone asked me to do an extra thing, whether officially part of my responsibilities or not, I would always say yes. Mm. Um, I There was this sense of, the more I work, the nobler I am, right? The more virtuous I am. And so I gladly took on all those extra responsibilities. Um, and, and so that is, I think, one of the very first things I would do if I could go back and advise my younger self is to like, please say no. Um, it is a healthy thing to say no. People are actually, for the most part, not as disappointed in you as you think they might be, <laughs> right? Um, most people can handle being told no. Uh, and, and so, um, th there is not a need to, to prove your worth by how hard you work or how long you work. Um, and, and to really treasure the time off, um, to, to protect and value those evenings that you're able to be at home or those weekends that you don't have events going on. Um, and not only to just, you know, park yourself in front of a screen and, you know, let your, let your mind zone out, but really um, to, to use that space for, for something that, that feeds you. Um, so, you know, for me, it's, it's very much about connecting one-on-one -on -one with the people I love, right. Or being out in nature, going on walks, um, just appreciating the beauty of what's around me. I love art and culture. So going to museums, going to concerts um, and, and recognizing that that's not selfish. That's not taking away from um, the important work that I feel called to do. It, it is actually additive that it strengthens me. It grounds me. It gives me that healthier perspective um, on what is it that we're even fighting for? Mm. What is the point of all this, right? And and to me, when I find myself surrounded by natural beauty um, or amazing art, it, it reminds me of, oh, this is the kind of beauty and peace that I want everyone in the world to be able to experience, right? And so, and so it 
gives me this new sense of um, it's energizing in a way that, you know, so many activists nowadays rely on anger as their primary fuel. And um, that's really unhealthy <laughs> in many ways. I mean, anger anger can be positive and healthy in that it moves us toward action. It is absolutely justified in many cases, and yet it is not what will sustain us. Um, and and uh, anger, it's it can turn into this this wildfire, right? It's very hard to control, and we may end up um, burning and hurting so many people around us that we did not intend to hurt. And um, and so it is far healthier to find that fuel and that energy from things of of beauty and kindness and love and relationship. And I know it, it sounds you know kind of frui and woo woo, but I mean it really that is ultimately I believe the um, the foundation of of human connection and um, and is what is going to move us towards societies that are truly inclusive and fair for everyone, not just for people similar to us, not just for people who agree with us, but for truly for everybody. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, you know, what are we fighting for? Like, that's such an important thing to keep front and center. I remember hearing, um, I can't remember where they were from, but someone who, whose country was basically a war and they were um, someone had asked them a question about like how you feel when you see um, people just getting on with life where in their like in other countries and things like that and they were like it it's so important and it gives me hope that because mm. that's the the point and I don't want to see people um, you know just constantly talking about that on social media or getting like allowing it to just consume every waking moment when there's you know, there, there might be things you can do, but on, a lot of the time we're, we're sort of making a lot of noise on things that we have no direct influence on and we're getting ourselves burned out thinking about things that it's like there's no outlet for it. Um, and actually we kind of miss the point then when we stop enjoying life, stop engaging with the things that give life meaning um, mm-hmm. because that's the, that's the thing, that that's what they're trying to get back to. That's what, like, you know, it's... Yeah, so it's such an important thing to to yes. remember, really. Yeah. Um, and can I add? So there's a there's a quote from the theologian Howard Thurman, who, um, as far as I can tell, you know, he he lived in the the mid twentieth century, but as far as I can tell, he does seem like a highly sensitive person. Um, so he was involved in the civil rights movement here in the U.S., but not like a Dr. King, he did not march, he did not protest, he was behind the scenes. He was a spiritual advisor to Dr. King and many other civil rights leaders. He was a writer and a teacher and a preacher. Um, and so uh, was very influential in terms of, you know, thinking about nonviolent resistance and um, and approaching uh, even your oppressors with, with love and kindness and compassion. And he has this incredible quote, um, I'm going to paraphrase it here where where basically um he says you know don't don't just ask what the world needs of you but ask what makes you come alive because ultimately what the world needs is people who have come alive um and and i think that applies to so much of what we do in life. And it also applies to justice work. You know, I think I had this mentality for a long time of like, if you're going to be in the work and in the fight, then you need to be feeling that like that pain and that suffering. And if you're not suffering, then it's not real. Right. Mm. Um, But, but I have come to believe that if you are where you need to be doing what you should be doing, there should be this, this energy and this life that comes from it. And so that would be my hope for for every sensitive person who wants to engage in the work of justice that you would um that you would listen to that nudge within your spirit of i want to get involved but you would give yourself permission to find ways to do so in a way that gives you joy 
you know, that if you are an artist, create beautiful, meaningful art. If you are an engineer, like invent a really cool product that will help people who, um, you know, who don't have access to important technologies. Um, if you are a researcher, like put your heart and your soul into looking into understanding, helping us understand what are the challenges that our societies are facing? What are the inequities and, and what are the solutions that could begin to move us forward? Um, and, and so I think that if we had a whole slew of, of sensitive people who, um, who approach their work with kindness and gentleness and creativity, um, it, I mean, they, they could do so much. Uh, I think our, our world would feel like a very different place. And that gives mm. me a lot of hope. Mm. Oh, I could talk about this all day. And I think yeah. that's a perfect way to, to end because it's, yeah, I was going to ask like, what bring, what gives you hope? And you've just, you've gone there and I'm, I feel hopeful, like hearing that and feeling that sense of, yeah, actually what the world needs is people who have come alive and yeah, finding that nudge, feeling that sense of like, what is it that is alive in me and how can I, yeah, express that in the world and, and make that difference in that kind, that gentle way. And yeah, yeah think small, you know, again, like, you know, sort of touched on it, but the temptation is to look at those big figureheads of movements and things and to think you've got to, that's the only way to, to do it, to be valuable. And, and actually that in itself, if the whole world was that, we would yeah. be, it would be awful. <laughs> It'd be absolutely terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, Dorcas, thank you so much for this. This has been, yeah, so nourishing and lovely, a lovely way to spend an hour. So, yeah. It's been delightful, Andy. Thank you for thank your great you. questions and the great conversation. I, I love talking with fellow HSPs. It's, oh, it's great, isn't it? So the good. The experience is very different from talking to non-HSPs. Like, I feel like I've come home. It's lovely. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. And if people want to connect with you further and... Yeah, read, read the book and things. Where's the best place to do that? Yes. So uh, the book is, I want to say it's available wherever books are sold, but I can't promise depending on what country you're in. Um, for sure, it is easily available online. Um, your favorite bookseller online should have it. It is uh, available as a hard copy, but also an ebook and an audio book, if, if that is your preference. And um, in terms of where you can find me, so one of the benefits of having an unusual name is that you can Google me and find me really easily because I think there's only one of me in the world. Oh, wow. um, so, <laughs> but I do I do have a website, so changtosen.com. You can find me there. And I'm online primarily on um, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Um, although you will find, we didn't really talk that much about social media, but you will find that I... Um, I am careful and thoughtful about how I engage with social media because I don't I don't necessarily think that that's the healthiest or even a very effective way to um, to instigate change. Mm. But I am there. I do check messages and I love hearing from people. So feel free to get in touch at any point. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, there's there are topics we could we could chat again at some point. Oh, and, yes. uh, yeah. Oh, yes. There's all we sorts. Spend weeks on social media. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Dorcas, thank you. Yes, of course. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Um, if this is an area of interest to you, then I really highly recommend uh, getting hold of the book, um, reading it. Uh, also, follow Dorcas on social media, as she said. Um, and let me know what resonated in our conversation with you. Um, do come and join us in the Haven where we're going to be opening up the discussion further. Um, it's a great opportunity, a great place to do that. It's obviously safe and private uh, so we can sort of be uh, be real. We can bring any questions like nothing is, is off limits. So, um, yeah, if there's things that you're like, I would, I would love to kind of get deeper into that and reflect on these issues that, that we talked about in, in this conversation, then uh, that is a great place to do it. Um, so you can learn more about joining us there at the-haven.co. So the-haven.co. There'll be a link in the show notes as well. All right. Well, I will leave it there. 
Until next time, do remember that you are an artist. The world needs your art. Now go and make somebody's day. Bye-bye. Thank you.